Pastors at times have a responsibility to feed the flock. Pastors also nurture the flock, but sometimes the church also needs a pastor to guard the flock. Uh, Last Sunday's sermon was one of those nurturing types of sermons where the text naturally led towards uh, comfort in the fact that the awareness that God is always present. He's, he's never absent, and that was the main message that we heard last Sunday. Occasionally, your pastor will also need to teach the Word of God with a view to guarding the flock. And this is one of those sermons, and I, I think it's important for us that we would take time to, to consider the truth of God's holiness Uh, There is from time to time a significant error that creeps into pulpits that a mere intellectual assent or a nod to the gospel is sufficient for eternal life. That is an error. It's a damnable error, which can lead people, unfortunately, to put a confidence in their intellect and they be fully absent of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And there are times where pastors have to call out false teaching. And this is one of those mornings where I have to do this. Uh, Perhaps you have been aware, maybe not, um, Andy Stanley, who has been a very significant leader in evangelicalism, has recently left the faith that was once delivered to the saints. He has boldly made the claim that People caught in the trap of homosexuality may aspire to the ideals of Scripture, but that it's perhaps for them unsustainable, and therefore the church ought to make accommodations. He has said, in his own words, I'll let him speak, he says, some people attracted to the same sex may live a chaste life, but for many that is not sustainable, so they choose same-sex marriage, not because they're convinced it's biblical, They read the same Bible we do, and they choose to marry for the same reason many of us do, for love, companionship, and family. And I want to make very clear that the primary reason that Stanley has made this departure from orthodoxy is due to his false understanding of conversion. An intellectual agreement with the truths of Scripture is not enough to be saved. You have to be born again. That doesn't mean that you're perfect, but you have the Holy Spirit moving within you, drawing you ever closer to the glory of God. Those who are truly converted will evidence the work of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying them, purifying them progressively over time. I don't know if you're aware, the Holy Spirit is holy. And the orientation of the heart will move gradually towards holiness. We are not so uncaring, obviously, to say that people can be very sensitive and aware and that there is a progress and growth in these areas. But the Holy Spirit, I have to communicate as a pastor who's dedicated to the truth, does grant new desires, it gives new tastes, and... The Holy Spirit convicts the heart, saying to you each and every day, you're standing on holy ground. 
And I believe that the anemic state of evangelicalism is really a departure from the holiness of God. We have a false teaching about conversion. Conversion is a work of the Spirit upon the intellect and also the heart to move towards holiness. And Paul introduces in his own letter of Romans a massive book, very challenging for even new believers to read. However, it can be done. And in that book, he talks about his own personal awareness of who Jesus is and and how the Holy Spirit communicated to his heart in such a way, it compelled him to respond in obedience to the gospel. The Holy Spirit caused him to have an obedience of faith, a faith that led him towards obedience to Jesus Christ. And I want to be clear, yes, Jesus is the friend of sinners. He is the friend of sinners. But Christ is also the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The Son of God took upon human flesh so that we might see God and not die. Moses was deeply concerned that if he would open his eyes and look upon God as he was in his presence, that he might die. And, and so when Christ came, we received a tremendous gift of being able to look upon the nature of God without being hurt, without being inflamed, without being incinerated. God is never absent, but when his presence is made known, it is a true gift to everyone who experiences the awareness that God is real and God is with them, It's such a wonderful gift, though. It demands my life. It demands my soul. It demands my all. And so this morning, as we look at this text, I want us to see how that God's presence is a gift that merits our faithful covenant keeping. God's presence is a gift that merits our faithful covenant keeping. Chapter 3, verse 1, we see the scene open up, and Moses is keeping his father-in-law's sheep. And as he's telling this, he describes Mount Horeb as the mountain of God. This scene, which starts in chapter 3, will continue all the way through chapter 4. And in verse 27, we see a reference to the mountain of God a second time. And this signals that this holy unit is intended to be seen together. And the rest of October, we're going to be moving uh, paragraph by paragraph and observing uh, the call of Moses, the resistance of Moses, and the graciousness and the mercy of God to still keep using Moses, even though he was reluctant to respond to faithful covenant keeping. And so as, he's, as we do this, we're going to be gazing upon the glory of God, and God is incredibly gracious, and whenever he extends his presence to someone, it is a gift. It is a gift to be received. It is a gift to be honored. 
And from these two chapters, we need to recognize that every initiated call of God upon a heart, a human heart, requires the same kind of covenant keeping of responding to his gracious gift. This is very true with the gospel even today. We might look at this and say, well, this is, that's an Old Testament concept. But the truth is that Jesus Christ established a new covenant that has, is a gracious gift that also has responsibilities of those who embrace it by faith. And contrary to Stanley's faulty doctrine of conversion, it only occurs when the Holy Spirit plants new desires within the heart. So let's look at this text. We're going to break it into little pieces, and, and I see in verses 1 through 6, I see symbols of God's gracious covenant making. I see symbols of God's gracious covenant making. Look at verse uh, 4 with me, in which we see, it says that when M Moses had turned aside to see this great sight, why the bush was not, bush was not burning it says that when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see him, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he turned aside and said, here I am. Moses is, if you will, he's almost like walking into a plot by God. It's, he put this bush burning on the mountain as a way to draw Moses' attention, and as we see it, it presented to us, when God saw that he was turning aside, it was like, so he's moving closer to this, this point of, of uh, uh, coming together in relationship. He communicates out Moses, Moses, and, and calls him into response. God very much had a, very, had a purpose for Moses, and, Mo, and that purpose included everything about Moses' future what he was going to do to lead God's people out of, of Israel. And I see in this that God has purposes for every person. When God makes a particular call to you to respond to the gospel, he has ambitions for you. And he demands your life, your soul, your all. He doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you, just as he's going to express to Moses that he wants all of him in all of his loyalty. There are symbols that occur in this that we may not be familiar with, and I want to take time to explain them to you. In particular, there is a curious little description of, of the fire. Look at verse, verse 2, in which it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. The angel of the Lord. Why do you think Moses hides his face in verse 6? He thought that he was looking directly at the glory of God. Was he? Well, not exactly. What he saw was a representation, but not the essence of God's glory. If Moses had seen the essence of the very center, if you will, the heart of who God is, I believe he would have died. And I believe it's a gracious presentation. God sent a 
form, a representation, an angel, a messenger in the form of a flame that was like a mediating presence, kind of like an ambassador. The president doesn't necessarily go himself. He sends a mediator, someone to go in between. And I see here that there is in this a description of what Christ does. When Christ comes and is incarnated into flesh, the second person takes upon flesh so that we can look upon him and we are not, ex we're not eradicated because of the purity of his holiness and his glory. Christ is very much, I believe, even present here in the burning bush and in the flame. The angel of the Lord, I believe, is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person and calling Moses into relationship with him. There is a communication. That is, we understand that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Talking about the second person of the Trinity. And we see, I believe, in this flame and the communication, we hear, I believe, the words of the second person, the Word who is with God, talking directly to Moses. Moses is being called into relationship with the Lord God Almighty. Abraham you will remember, also received a call. And he was called to leave his own family and travel to a, nation, a, a land that he had never experienced or knew before. And he was brought into a covenant relationship. He was gifted with a knowledge and awareness of the true and living God, but there were responsibilities that came with that. Moses is being called into relationship as well with the same person the same God. Now, I believe what this also indicates to us is that while Moses had an awareness that he had a heritage, a godly heritage through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses here couldn't just simply live in that abstract awareness. He also needed to have a, if you will, a coming to Jesus moment. He also needed to experience personally the God of his ancestors. And I believe you can see in this that the kingdom of God is not done through just general association, but through personal relationship with God, who is the creator. And he must come to each one of us individually and impress upon our hearts the need to respond to him directly. Just as clear as day, you need to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you saying, John, John, and respond, here I am. You also need to have a personal response to God yourself. And so you see, I believe, some of the symbols of how a covenant relationship is established in uh, this experience here with the angel of the Lord. Let's look at the second one of the burning bush itself that's not consumed. This is miraculous on every, on every level. Uh, at the last part of verse 2, we read that uh, this fire is coming out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. It was not consumed. That's remarkable. But I do believe that this is what we might call, in biblical speak, an, op an, an ap ap excuse me, 
apocalyptic imagery. You know the book of Revelation has all kinds of images in it that seem half normal, half not normal. You see, for example, Jesus in a vision being portrayed as a man, which is pretty normal, and he has eyes, which are pretty normal, but they're blazing fire. You see a sword coming out of his mouth. The mouth is normal. The sword coming out of his mouth is not normal. And what you see is in these images a juxtaposition, a, a putting together of the ordinary with the extraordinary. And I believe that this image of a burning bush is a very similar kind of image that we see something very normal, a bush burning, but it not being consumed is extraordinary. But there is a message in this of it being consumed but not yet consumed. And I do believe that if this is truly a presentation of the second person of the Godhead, what we are seeing is a pre-incarnate expression of what Christ would one day come to do. Christ himself would be burned through his death, burial, and descent into hell and his resurrection. He would not perish. He would be consumed, but yet he would not be consumed. You see in the book of Revelation similar metaphors of a lamb that was slain, but then you see that it's not slain. And I see in this, this picture, I see a beauty of, of God the Father initiating a relationship with humanity, knowing that we can't keep a relationship with him, but providing a way that his son could take the punishment for the sins that we commit against him. And I see in this not only the holiness of God, I also see the mercy of God presented in symbolic form. It will only get larger as the scriptures unfold, and you will see when Christ uh, is resurrected the glory of the Son and in the gospel. There is also another symbol of this covenant you can see in verse 4. In verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, there's this invitation, there's this call, and there's an invitation to response. And you see uh, Moses responding, and I do believe that the gospel is all of grace, and it comes with an invitation to respond. God called Moses, in, and also in the gospel, God calls sinners to repent and respond and to believe the gospel. And I believe what the responsible and reasonable response to the gospel is, is to say with all of one's heart, here I am. Take all of me. Now, I don't believe that Moses was ready to say, take all of me yet. He was kind of like in a trap of sorts. He was brought into a situation where he's almost like in a trance. He's kind of walking through these steps. But yet in this moment, you're starting to see some of the unfolding of the gospel in seed form. I think it's important to ask all of ourselves a question that I asked you a few Sundays ago. Why are you here at the tabernacle? There are so many providential ways in which God brings you to an awareness that he exists. 
And it's just like Moses is, is hearing this call and invitation to response, God is also, by even the fact that you're here at the tabernacle, hearing the gospel being proclaimed week after week, and we're singing in songs, the question is, how are you going to respond to the offer of grace that's for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Christ is asking you to respond to him. Are you ready to say, here I am? Take all of me. I'm ready to respond with my life, my soul, my all. There is a call to response. And as I said, I don't think Moses fully grasped what's going on here. And I don't think fully any of us really grasp what's going on when we encounter God and his people. But when we do see it, we have a choice to make. Do we respond by faith, by believing and turning away from all of our sin, or do we keep going on our way? I would confess that Moses here will not be let go, and I would encourage you to consider your own heart and life. Your faith will be tested in days to come just as Moses's faith is being tested. We, we, you're going to have to take my word for it because we haven't gone through the rest of these chapters, but Moses is going to be broken down gradually so that he comes to a point where he says, okay, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. Which would be better, though? Would it be better to simply say, yes, Lord, I'm ready to do what you want me to do, or to be broken down and suffer God wants every single one of us to respond to his gracious offer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants us all to turn to him. And you see another symbol in verse 5 of this, this meeting with Moses and calling him to relationship with him. Verse 5, um, we read this, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, the demand to remove one's sandals may seem really strange. It may seem really bizarre to us. But you might say, well, you know, he's a sheep farmer. He follows the sheep. He's going to have manure on his feet. It makes sense. But I think there's something much more significant happening here than just that. And I think that we have to take the sandals being taken off in in union with the communication that he's standing on devoted ground, holy ground, that's literally what it means, it's devoted to God. And I believe what's going on here is that he's entering into what it would have been known in his day as a depossession ceremony. Now, I wouldn't expect any of us to really know that. That's why you have a pastor who tells you these things. But he was involved, I believe, in a depossession ceremony. And he was taking off his sandals as a signal that he was ready to surrender his rights and obligations to a more superior person. Some older Christians who are familiar with the stories of the Bible might remember the story that took place in the book of Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess, she, she was a young widow who who had no children, and she migrated back to Israel with her mother-in-law. And in those days, 
the inheritance would pass through the male heirs. But when there was no successor, a kinsman would marry the widow and would raise up offspring in memory of the deceased uh, family member. Ruth had her eyes set on Boaz. She thought, this is the guy who can make all my dreams come true. I actually like this guy, and I'd like to spend my life with him. But on closer inspection, Boaz told her, unfortunately, there is a nearer relative than I, and I have to go and ask him first if he's willing to take you in under his wing. If he's unwilling, then I will be willing. And so the man who was a closer relative was given the opportunity to redeem Ruth and do by her the right of a leveret marriage. But for whatever reason we don't know, he... He decided not to pursue that, and as a sign that he was relinquishing his right of redemption, he took off his sandals and he handed them to Boaz as a symbol that he was depossessing himself of that which was his right to possess. I believe that this is a similar move. That Moses standing on holy ground takes off his sandals as a signal, he's being requested to do this, as a signal that he will be giving up even his own personal rights and become wholly devoted unto the Lord. He is, if you were, depossessing himself. And it was a signal and a sign of devotion to the Lord. This is what God was asking him to do. Now, I believe he was in a sense, in a place of coercion, there was something like, what else was he going to do? Was he going to just say no? And that's why there's testing that goes on in the subsequent chapters to see whether or not it's truly out of the heart or not. But I believe in this. God, nevertheless, expected Moses to respond to this gift of relationship with a full devotion of his life, to give everything to him. And so I wanted to... Um, consider the question for ourselves. Have we given up everything because we have received such a gracious, gracious gift of relationship with the God who made us? So when we come to Christ, we talk about believing by faith. The repentance piece is the response of faith, which says, I'm ready to give up my old way of life, of living for myself, of living in sinful decisions, I'm going to give you everything, Lord. I want you to have everything. That is a real act of love and faith. That's what God expects. That's what he, he's do, he is, is owed to him. Now, in verse 6, there's one last symbol that I want to point out in verse 6 of this uh, relationship and this gift. In verse 6, it says, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, what we're hearing here might be more understanding if we put it into a New Testament context in which we have heard it said that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God of the living, and he is also the God 
of the people of Israel. He is the God of the living, and he is not the God of the dead. When God makes a covenant with sinners through Christ, he binds himself to them in such a way that they never die. They never are consumed. When we pass from this life into the next, we, we, we leave the temporal and enter the eternal. I think that when God makes a covenant with sinners, what he's doing is he's binding himself in such a way that they will never, ever die. In Jesus' day, he was asked a hypothetical question by a group of unbelievers in the Jewish community. There were different sects and schools of thought on how to interpret the Torah and the law. One of the sects was very secular, and they um, denied the reality of a resurrection. And Jesus responded to their disbelief with these very words that Moses heard, and he said to them, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. And so when you enter into relationship with, with Christ, who, who is our mediator today, we don't look at a burning bush or a flame. We look at Christ, who is the living Son of God. And when we come to him, we are coming to someone who is eternal, who is the same yesterday, today, forever. He is always the same. And he guarantees to us eternal life. I want to sum up what's happening here. And I want us to see how that Moses is invited into a covenant relationship with God that is based upon grace. It's based upon grace alone. Moses didn't initiate this. He became aware of God because on the mountain there was a, a, a flame burning and it drew his attention. And in the miracle of the preservation of this flame, he was recognizing that this is a spectacular thing. And he was being invited into a relationship of faith and devotion and surrender and giving of himself fully to God. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look. He had all the intellectual awareness. But I personally believe that his heart had not been effectively turned towards God. And so what we see in the subsequent chapters, we see Moses resisting God. Moses saying, I hear what you say, Lord, but... And he goes back and forth four and five times with God, resisting a need to be fully devoted to him. And so what I see in verses 7 through 12, and I will be incredibly brief at this point, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the symbol and the call to relationship. But what I see here in the last seven verses, I see a sufficiency of God's word being proclaimed for the future and that Moses should put his absolute trust in, in God's word because God has performed and kept his word. Verses 7 through 10, we see a recitation of the ancient prophecy. And I'm not going to read it again, but what we're being basically told is that God heard. He knew what was going on. We read it at the end of chapter 2. God is not absent. He, he, he knows what's going on in the world around him. He may appear distant, but he is not distant, and he will show up, and he will act. You may think that there will be no 
giving of justice in this world, but yes, he is coming again, and it will happen. And so the recitation of the ancient prophecy that one day Moses or Abraham's descendants will be delivered from Egypt is critical as a demonstration that God foreknew, but also now God also shows up. And the recitation of this ancient prophecy is a demonstration that he is going to call a redeemer to come and to lead his people out. Moses is that person. And I believe this also prefigures in a greater way that when Christ comes, and he has come, he has also initiated a kind of covenant that calls Christians to be like little Moseses, going out into the world and telling people that they can be relieved from the slavery of sin that they are in bondage to. I see all of the prophecies in Scripture as proof positive that we have a calling to go to the world and tell people that they don't have to struggle with sin. They can turn with all of their heart and find relief, and they can see forgiveness for everything that they have experienced. All the guilt can go away in Christ Jesus. And when Christ came, he inaugurated a new covenant so that we might go out into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a part of the great emancipation that we are called to proclaim to the world. Why do you think God calls us to lead others out of sin and death? Why does he do that? It's also to test the genuineness of our own faith. Have we been turned? Have our hearts genuinely been turned? Moses was resistant and reluctant to communicate the good news because his heart had not yet been turned. And so we have all been called to proclaim to others the good news if we stumble and have a hard time opening our mouth when the opportunity is presented, it could be that our heart is not turned and we're like Moses. We're resisting the call. When the sufficiency of God's word is clear, it anticipates and it shows up. It showed up 2,000 years ago in a manger in Bethlehem. God calls some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. He calls some to be shepherds. He calls some to be teachers. But we are all called as the church of God to make good on the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We are to tell the world. And every Christian is called to relinquish our own rights and joyfully join with the church to make proclamation to the world. There is also an affirmation of God's eternal presence that's expressed here in verses 11 and 12. Uh, I'll read it again. In verse 11 it says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, and you shall serve God on the mountain." Now, these last two verses are both sad and they're also surprising. They're sad because Moses is being passive-aggressive. 
He's not outright stamping his foot and saying, no, I don't want to. He's more passively asking it in question form. And he's resisting God's word. Now, God compelled Moses, yes, into a relationship, and we're not immediately certain what Moses' real desires are at this point. And Moses says, who am I? And God responds, it doesn't matter who you are. I will be with you. Isn't that good enough? And then he says, and this shall be the sign for you, that I've sent you. When I have brought you, brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, how is that a sign? That is crazy. He's looking for something in the immediate that would, like, give him the confidence to go into Pharaoh's court. Well, wait a second. What did Moses just see? A bush that's not consumed. God's presence is right there. Isn't that good enough? And so what God does is says, look, I will go with you and don't worry. I will be with you and we will come back together to this mountain and the people of God will worship here with you. This will not only be your own little worship experience. Others will come and worship God with you. Moses had just turned aside to see this great sight, and a bush is talking to him. Why wouldn't he think that the future would be as, as bountiful as the present? See, when you hear God's voice genuinely speak deeply into your heart, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that Christ is calling you into relationship with him, your future changes, and you don't have to worry about the future. Here, Moses is worried about the future because his heart has not changed. I see in this the kindness of God and the mercy of God. I see Moses not changed yet. I see someone in process. By the end of the mountain experience, he's going to be broken. But at this point, we're seeing the emblems, the symbols of, of, of communicating a desire to have a relationship with him. We see the, the message of the word of God presented as a, something to hold on to. And I believe that we can look at this and see how that the, God's presence is a gift that merits our faithful covenant keeping. Now, I've, a few years ago, Andy Stanley had said that Christianity should unhitch itself from the Old Testament. And what he meant was is that we should remove the problematic things that we see in the Old Testament. And I would have to say that Stanley, unfortunately, is becoming problematic because he's trying to unhitch us from the holiness of God. Conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit that's not merely mental. It affects the heart. And it causes us to become in, uh, aligned with God's word and to live in responsiveness to it. See, all sinners can find relief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
we can look at the Old Testament, we can look at the Ten Commandments, and we can look at all of the things that God has communicated and say, who is able to sustain and do all of these things? And the answer is found, Jesus Christ is able. And he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we become able over time to keep his word. This is the hope, this is the liberation, this is the promise that this world needs. May we be faithful as stewards to carry out the good news and call people to trust and receive the gospel and to be born again. Let's pray.